Welcome to In Conversation With. Join me, Danny Jarvis, as I sit down with guest DJs, promoters, record labels, content makers, and anyone making moves on the underground house music scene. There's plenty of nostalgia, but there's also some key insights as to where the underground scene is today. So if you like what you hear, please hit the follow or subscribe button and leave us a review. Wherever you will listen to your podcasts, at the gym, in the car, or chilled at home. Relax and enjoy In Conversation With. So Dominic, welcome to In Conversation With. I have been looking forward to speaking to you for some time. We've had quite a few conversations um, in the past few weeks leading up to this, mainly about some of the projects and things we want to work together on, which we'll come on to later. But for all of the listeners um, at Progressive House UK, please do introduce yourself and tell us about how you first got into this scene. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll pass the mic over to you. Thank you, uh, Danny. Uh, well, firstly, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you because um, I've been sort of a bit of a lone ranger in the whole world of of sort of progressive house and DJing for coming up to sort of three years now. So for me to start to um, go into conversations with people to, you know, share my thoughts and feelings about the scene um, and the music and the, the state of the scene and where we are and where we're heading, you know, this is all really new for me but it's also really, really exciting um, for me to be able to start to share that. So thank you for that, first and foremost. Um, so where do I start? Well, I've, I've been in dance music for, for as long as I can remember. Um, I think I got into the scene around the age of 16, I think it was. So that was uh, a few decades ago now. Um, and... Yeah, it was, I think, if I remember, the first track that kind of sparked my interest, I think, was um, CNC Music Factory. And I think the track was called Gonna Make You Sweat. Um, I don't know if you remember that one, but it was it was a, uh, a, t- a chart topper. It was quite a, a, a massive tune uh, back in the day. I think it was around sort of 92, 91, 92, something like that. Um, and it had a really good sort of dance uh, beat to it. There was some rapping over the top of it as well. So it wasn't what you'd call pure dance music, but it had the dance, you know, it had the beat to it. And I think that really kind of sparked my interest. I was like, whoa, this is different. You know, this is not the typical stuff that was coming out at the time. So it sparked my interest and got me into into sort of that type of sound. Um, I think soon after that, there was a bit more stuff coming through in the charts as well. You know, in, in the day we didn't have, obviously didn't have the in, uh, the internet. So, you know, whatever we heard was either on the radio or on the TV. So uh, we were at the mercy of, of what was what's played to us, but stuff like, I think um, 808 State were quite big and then this, we're talking about sort of late 80s, early 90s. 808 State were quite big. There was a band called I think KLF, um, The Shaman. There was a few of those types of 
um, of, of bands that were starting to toy with, you know, the, the sound, the electronic sound. And, and that was kind of, I think, those were the types of, of, of groups or, or individual artists that really kind of uh, immersed me into the, into the, uh, the dance scene. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of like the, the initial kind of uh, uh, eye-opening moment for me when, when I thought that EDM was, was going to be my sound as, of choice. Yeah, I think I think you've picked some really good seminal tracks there, and you know, CNC Music Factories was of course Villies and Cole, um, they're kind of crossover into a much more mainstream sort of version than what they'd been doing. Um, KLF, I mean, yeah, absolutely anybody um, who was anybody was tearing up the dance floor at the at the at the senior disco. It was sort of eleven and twelve. I remember, you know, KLF coming on. Um, quite a dark sound, actually, KLF, and um, quite Ooh. a dark sound. And then, yeah, also a personal favourite of mine, The Shaman. Um, it's the real sort of crossover there from the kind of rave music into popular mainstream. So, you've, yeah, you've, you've definitely picked some some standout tracks there because I think you're right. If you, if you even just put those few tracks together... Um, particularly eight weight state you've got a, you've got almost techno to kind of pop to mm-hmm. kind of progressive almost with the shaman in a way and yep. um, yeah that they're nice influences so many many people um that i chat to were of a similar age it's just it's just by coincidence really um and i think that a lot of people who get into the scene their experiences either are kind of given to them like that where you've got MTV just sort of starting to play a few things you know videos coming through which were very you know captivating back in the day wasn't it seeing like these videos coming on the TV screens and then really the only thing you would kind of get it totally by pop look might be a top of the pops appearance which I think I think 808 state did Uh um did you did you try and source sort of music outside of that once that you know, once that got your imagination going, did you try and find more of that music? Yeah, yes, I did. But I think that it kind of found me in many respects because I, um, at the time, I was uh, I was moving down from uh, Leicester to to Reading, which is the Reading's the town that I'm I, I'm here now. I was born in Reading, but I went to Leicester with my parents uh for uh, i followed them because they set up a business over there so they they then came back down to uh, i then i then came back down to reading and i and this was quite a young age i was only 17 at the time and i kind of fell into the world of um happy hardcore and and the rave scene which was circa 1992 um so it was you know i don't know if you know but in the south there was this huge rush of 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 music around happy hardcore the rave scene um, a lot of illegal raves were taking place a lot of clubs um, or bars and pubs were starting to convert into into clubs where they would have you know um, a huge rave scene as such and music was being played and and djs were popping up and, and coming to play uh, sets there so I kind of just fell into that. I kind of we went out one one evening and myself and my cousin and a few a few people and we just sort of stumbled up across a, a a club called Gatsby's in Reading. Now Gatsby's was it was an underground club and it was directly opposite the train station. I remember, 
and it was open on a Friday and a Saturday. The rest of the week it was shut. It was this it was really kind of weird setup, but it was like this building, and then you kind of walked down into the stairs into this nightclub, which probably only held about, I would say, at a push to 250 people. So a very intimate uh, place. Um, but we quickly realized that actually some of the, the, the DJs, which, you know, fast forward, you know, a year or two years would be, you know, some of the, the biggest DJs in the scene. For example, a, a regular there was uh, the guys from Top Buzz. We had like Slip Matt, the Rat Pack, who were huge, huge at the time. A guy called Mickey Finn, Randall, all of these DJs were actually regulars there. I guess they were trying to get into the scene. They were new DJs. They were probably trying to make a name for themselves. So they were invited to this club. And we were, you know, we were there, you know, and I was literally arm's length from the DJ booth. And, you know, it was very casual. It wasn't like it would be later on where there was a lot of security and there was a division between the, the fans and, and the DJ. It was a very intimate place. And yeah, that was my first experience of the uh, of the hardcore scene and, and I remember it fondly and I laugh sometimes because my my cousin who was there with me we you know we're, we're of similar age and we sort of talk fondly of of the experiences that we had but we're gutted because obviously we don't have any evidence of the the times that we had we didn't obviously have smartphones um, we kick ourselves because we didn't take a camera with us um, but you know, all those memories are are still fondly in our in our minds, which is which is great. Yeah, you've mentioned some great names there. Like um, I I had a I had a, a podcast with Will Willie No Glows from Super Progressive a while ago. It was a series he did called Backtracks, and um, I discussed with him at length the kind of playground rave tape swapping, and Mickey Finn, uh, Top Buzz. Rat Pack, they were all massive. It was like a whole, you know, you've got crypto now. Then yep. you had rave tapes. <laughs> um, rave tapes were the crypto of like, like playgrounds back in like 1990. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I started I started senior school in in 89. So yeah, by the time we got to sort of 12, 13, and the rave scene really was happening, it was a case of these like clubs from down south particularly down south that you would try and get these um get these tapes and you would you would get hold of them there was there was a kind of mix of things really where <clears throat> there was there was kind of that there was the wigan pier scene um wigan's got a really old school vibe from the kind of 60s right through all of the kind of stuff that went on there the northern soul stuff then it became like the house sort of the the northern kind of house scene all came from that but it was a mixture of that and and rave tapes, um, and I think the thing that the thing that always captures my imagination when you really think about rave tapes, is they were terrible quality, and the MCs shouted over most of the tracks, yeah. so you'd kind of have to you really had to tune in to hear anything. Yeah. So that must have been really good to have been actually there then, right? Because back in them days with big analog sound systems, they still they still pounded, right? Oh, I mean this. This club, I mean, how can I describe this club? This club was just, you know, like, 
you have the big events, you know, because later on we did some of the bigger, bigger events like, you know, your Fantasias and your Rain Dances. That was all, you know, that was the natural progression. But the I really... version, wasn't it, then became... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Became, yeah. But there was something about the intimacy of the of this club that, that was just... It was just so... The, the camaraderie that you got with the people and that, that's something that's has stuck with me all of these years is the happy hardcore scene and the rave scene back in the early 90s it was like a tribal gathering of sorts it was like it was like people that just connected with each other through music um and that's something that we've never managed to recapture in in sort of the the clubbing in sector and the scene and in all the various you know um uh genres of of dance music i don't think and correct me if i'm wrong because i'm not i don't go out as as much as i used to to you know to all these events that are happening and taking place these days but certainly the you know the connections that you made with like-minded people it was something that was like it was it was beyond you know, just going out and having drinks with people. It was, you really made a, a connection with these people. The music just really brought it all to life. And I remember walking down these stairs and we would all, we were, <laughs> it was all <clears throat> ultraviolet lights in the day. So people would wear like, you know, obviously glow sticks were a thing. So you, you had to buy a glow stick and they made you buy a glow stick before you entered. That was part of a caveat of, of, of joining, of entering the club. But, you know, you paid a fee, but they were selling glow sticks and, you know, you had to have one. So they sell glow sticks, whistles was, were also sold. But you walk down these stairs and all you can see is just ultraviolet. So you can see people smiling. So their teeth are, you know, they're, they're bright and everyone's really... They're just like in this trance almost. And you just felt like you were part of this. As soon as you entered and you heard the, the pounding of that bass in that club, because it was a small club and they had a, a pretty loud sound system in there. Um, I'm guessing it was probably, what, about 5, 10K of sound in a very small space. Uh, so you can imagine the, you know, you could feel it inside you, that 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 pounding of, 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 the, of the bass line. And yeah, it was... You know, it was it was just it was an amazing experience. I love that, Dominic. I love I love the fact you got rave merch on the way in. A <laughs> <laughs> bit memorabilia before it before you used it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think some of the things you've highlighted there are really interesting. And you know, again, when you think about modern day, how different things are now. When you had situations like that one of the things that I remember researching and, and reading about was the fact that up until a certain point the only people really who traveled from town to town for any kind of events were football fans mm -hmm. so the main sort of traffic if you like up and down the UK and around the UK was football fans with which unfortunately came with a lot of violence so you wouldn't potentially get people coming out of their own city or out of their provincial towns to travel to other towns. And this was one of the things I think that the scene massively kind of broke through was people suddenly started traveling to places where they weren't going for trouble. 
they were going for something they'd heard. It was very much word of mouth. How are we going to get there? There was the excitement of kind of that part of the culture. And then, as you said, when people actually got there, it was brand new. There was nothing to compare it to. There wasn't, oh, I'm going to take my Kodak camera, take loads of pictures and then develop these pictures and go home and, and show your friends and say, look at this. That It just didn't happen. It was all happening almost live. Yeah. You know, the, the whole scene was born around that time. And like you said, people from different ethnic groups, different cultures were all there because they were looking for something different. And, yeah, the drugs may have helped. Not everybody was on drugs, of course, though, because it was a musical revolution as well as part of a cultural revolution. And I think it's really sad that now that, you know, I'm you know, I'm not going to poo-poo the young, but I can well imagine that your first ever big like gig, you know, big concert is the only frame of reference you've got. So if you're turning yeah. up at a Tomorrowland or you're turning up at one of the modern massive Tale of Us gigs or something, your mind will be blown because the music, the power of that is very strong. But the cultural aspect is not the same as it was then because you were hearing music and you were seeing types of people and clothing and behaviours that were that were totally new. And that was encapsulating, wasn't it? Hundred percent. I mean, it was it was a completely new experience. Um, you know, your sensory it was sensory overload if you think about it, because it was not just visual, but it was you know auditory. It was a sound. It was the just being part of something, and the I guess almost the the energy level that was there when you know there's not you know there's two hundred or 2000 I mean we, you know, we laughed we we went from that and then we kind of in that club environment of 200 people we were so absorbed by it that we then started to go it was the first event and then we went again and then we went again and before we, we knew it we were first name terms with the bouncers on the door you know um, we were starting to sell tickets for, 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 for these guys that were running the events the promoters we started to make friendships uh, within that uh, that scene, that Reading scene, which was, you know, it was in the south, but it was a Reading, you know, relatively small town compared to, you know, London and, and some of the other places. But there was a community of people that we started to to hang with, and it, we are, it's like we, we became our own little tribe there, if you want. Um, you know, it reminds me of um, I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Human Traffic. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. So if you watch if you watch Human Traffic, that so clearly depicts what our life was like back in the day. It really does. It's a really true um, representation of what the the rave scene was like and the the rave culture was like and the interactions between uh, between people within those uh, little groups of, of of fans of the music. So. Yeah, that was it. And then we started to sort of venture out into some of the more the more bigger raves, like, you know, there was Fantasia we went to, that was, I think, 20,000 20, people, something like that. And then we had Amnesia, Helter Skelter, um, Rain Dance, Dreamscape. I mean... Yeah, yeah, we had, a, we, had a, we, had a, we had a bit of, we had a bit of a misspent during that period. Yeah, I mean, all the all the rave pack tapes you used to have to send off for, like I said, it was just so far away from home. Milton Keynes could have been like another galaxy for me. Yeah. Getting all the tapes and kind of 
having the originals and listening to Dougal and Slipmat and Cy and then you know I very early in those days got into LTJ Buckham in about 1993 so that kind of opened up the drum and bass yeah do you remember his logical progression sound well yeah oh I mean I was, the very wow. first LTJ Buckham tape ever I was hooked I was just hooked never heard anything it was like dreamy dream yeah. drum and bass even, you know? even even if you listen to that now it's as fresh as the day that he produced that that that, that album it is just sublime it really really is he yeah. was leaps and bounds ahead of his time in terms of well, you know what he was doing and even, yeah yeah you're right i think i think one of the interesting parts of a lot of the conversations i have with people particularly on when we've done them on on in conversation with is that it for a certain generation of people, it's unavoidable that their journey of where they are well, or where, de- where they are now came from rave. Because the, it's like we touched on there, the cultural part of it was right at the point where it was so different. You didn't, you didn't just do it because you wanted to piss your parents off. You did it because there was, it was so different. You had top of the pops, sterilised pop, Bananarama, you know, you grew up similar era to me where you heard the same music all the time. You went to parties and the DJ would play a, a mega mix of like Kylie and you would, it was just boring and you were done with it. And there was all this music all of a sudden that was, you had the big tunes, but then the DJs would move quite quickly. And, and like, like you said about human traffic, the one thing that's kind of poignant really in the scene is that the people who own the record stores were the people that had access to the music mm-hmm. that either DJed themselves or had the DJs coming in. It wasn't very big stretch of the imagination then to have a promoter that was on that like peripheral. And then before you know it, if you're enjoying it, you become involved because there was a kind of, you know, almost a, a need, a desire to kind of be one of the moving cogs in this. Um, I mean, how, I guess the logical question for me next is, how did you come from kind of that scene into what we all sort of, I think, understand as a more um, a more kind of above the line house? Because there was house and garage, wasn't there? Did you you're, you're from the south. And when I say garage, I sort of mean the gospel mm-hmm. and records garage, the big vocal tracks with the dub sides rather than later on, like late 90s kind of two step. Did you go through that garage and house sort of? No, not really. I kind of, so around about sort of the mid 90s, mid to sort of late 90s, the the um, the rave scene started to to morph into the jungle scene. Um, It started to get a little bit darker um, and I think that it got a little bit more edgy. There was a bit of a, there was the bad attitude started to seep through because the um, the nefarious, you know, people out there realized that it was a money-making pit when it came to selling drugs. So it quickly, it, it went away from this tribal gatherings that that we was that was synonymous with that that whole scene, you know, and where it was about the music to becoming more about, you know, the drug selling and the money-making aspects of 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 raving. And I think that at the same time there was that transition. Uh, in terms of the music itself, you know, happy hardcore, you know, the clues in the name, it was happy, it was very melodic, it was very uplifting. 
And then the jungle and the darker scene started to sort of uh, take over. And at that point, I kind of lost a little bit of uh, the appeal um, for for the for the movement at the time. So I kind of withdrew a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, I guess the transition for me from from that was then from that. I, there was a few years of I wasn't really then that active in it um, to then starting to listen to some of the trance that was coming out um, in the sort of early 2000s. So, you know, you had your likes of Oakenfold, you had uh, System F, uh, Tiesto, Ferry Corsten, some of these really, really profound um, uh, uh, producers that were producing trance. So, yeah, I kind of I kind of ventured into trance for a while, which which was you know, it was really, really exciting uh, in that particular uh, sector and, and, and time. So, yeah, that's where I kind of, I went into that. And then the, the transition for house music really came about in my 30s. That's kind of when I, I had this time where I was busy with life and work and relationships and all those things that I guess they distract you from, from music. Music becomes a bit of an afterthought then. So there was this period of time where I kind of I, I played a bit of trance and then I kind of went away from it and then I came back to it and I was like, I'm not really, not really feeling it this as much. And then I think what really kind of um, captured my imagination again was when uh, you had all of the Renaissance and the global underground stuff that was coming out. And I think that was the defining moment for me when I realised that, that, you know, house music and specifically progressive house uh, was actually my calling yeah it's it it is it is an interesting one because i think it all depends on kind of where where you were at maybe where you were placed in the scene and like you say what you were doing at that point in your life whether you were at uni you know a lot of people who who didn't go to university probably had an extra or had less three less years that they could go out and listen to such music and I I guess really sort of in in a in a twist fortunately had two goes at uni I was in Manchester in 96 and played a lot of house music played a lot of AMP and records played a lot of stuff that I could get from Eastern Block and that kind of music I was heavily into the Hacienda going and seeing Graham Park on Saturday nights playing that kind of sound and playing that in the like the uni bar and then because I, because I already DJed, I, I continued to collect records, even though I, I finished at Salford, only did a year there, about a year and a half I was in Manchester, took my decks back home, continued to DJ. And at, the, at that time, I mean, this is like 96, there still wasn't many people actually DJed. It was still something that was quite rare. So you would play parties, you would do stuff um, without going into too much about me. But then really what happened for me was that the kind of 95 sort of progressive sound the bt stuff was only a few records like that so you really had to dig around to find it and they didn't quite fit in your set and you know like you said until sort of global underground really which was kind of more your 1997 that sound the progressive sound i think we know now although it started kind of 95 was still chopped up with lots of different music, lots of different types of music. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the, the kind of BT stuff took it in one direction, but there wasn't huge amounts of it. There's probably only Guerrilla Records and a few DJs that you would out and out hear play a full progressive set. Um, I mean, even really when you listen to Nick Warren's kind of first um, Global Underground, it, it, there's you can't really call that progressive. It was techno. It was all sorts yeah. mixed up. And it wasn't really until sort of probably Digweed took the horns um, on number six and did that very dark American style, chunky, growling kind of first CD, but then a very shiny, almost heading towards trance, zippy second CD, the the Australian 006 album. And for me, that, that was the real game changer in a sound because... I felt quite confident then that I'd got a lot, I'd started to get a lot of chunkier house and the way he put that together, like his second Renaissance, the way he put that together and it all built up, that was kind of a really important album for, for me and my friends. That was the one we put on in the car and went to Cream, that that we were going to Cream, so we were seeing the likes of Dave Seaman, who who would come out of, or again, he'd come out of like a housier sound and started to make all these big vocal Brothers and Rhythm tracks that were not the Brothers and Rhythm tracks that he was first playing, mm-hmm. that became the big house anthem. So I think the Northern scene was was very rooted in house music. And I think mm-hmm. that's because of Liverpool and Manchester. So my, my kind of direct influences were very different than a lot of Southern people's. That translated when I went down to um, live in Cheltenham in 99, I'd started actually visiting in 97. I knew people there. They just played a completely different sound. There was one guy who's one of one of my oldest friends from uni, Dave, Dave Ferno. He's one of our residents. It was only him playing progressive, but he still, he had more of a gate crasher sound to his style. So he was from a small place, Tunbridge Wells in Kent. And he's playing stuff that he's hearing Scott Bond play up north. And I kind of came with the kind of Liverpool, Manchester sound. Mm-hmm. And somehow in between, when we started playing together, we, we had this very new, very melodic sound that we would play together. And, and he would joke sometimes that I was darker than him. Like, I would go for those darker sounds. But I guess, I guess at the same time, the reason I'm saying this is I never stopped listening to the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Ronnie Size, Brown Paper Bag, <coughs> Bookham, you know, all of that stuff, the the um, the orb, orbital, all of those, what you would back then in the kind of category in H H M V would be left field. Mm-hmm. All of that was part of what I listened to. There was there was no distinguishing it, and I would go through that, like meander through that in my musical style. If mm-hmm. I could play it at a party, I'd play all of it. So I've always had a really broad range of tastes and I thought everybody did but the, but these interviews are showing that that's not the case no is and I, it is good it is so it's good to talk to people that have this you know this different um taste of music because it I think you know in in our scene I think that or from what I'm seeing in the progressive scene is that there are some quite contrast in terms of the flavors of progressive if you go to the likes of Argentina um, where, as you know, uh, it's a massive, massive movement right now, and it just goes from strength to strength. Um, the the sounds that are coming out of there are quite melodic, and I'm guessing that that kind of goes with the 
I guess the culture over there of you know the sort of Latino dancing and vibing and you know that upbeat kind of uh, sense of 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 music culture, um, you know, and I think that. So when I first started uh, quite recently, it's only in the last three years that I started DJing properly. I did own some 1210s back in the day and I bought a bunch of, of, of vinyl. Uh, but then I kind of, I started it and then I got distracted with life and they kind of collected dust a little bit in the, in the bedroom. And then in my 30s, I bought my first set of uh, Denon DJ, uh, CDJs. Uh, that's when obviously things were, uh, 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 music was played through CDs. So I spent endless hours basically burning CDs. Um, and, you know, during that whole period, um, I've always leaned towards the, the melodic side of, of progressive house. Something that really, uh, or, you know, when I'm listening to music, it's really, really difficult to explain this, but I can list to, listen to 100 tracks on Beatport and I might only like one or two of them. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, that those 98 tracks are no good. It's just I've got a really um, distinctive idea of what resonates with me in terms of the music that I like. And so for me, it's a real labour of love in putting sets together. I mean, you know, a typical set is one hour set is what, 12, 13 tracks. And the amount of time that I take to compile the playlist, to arrange the tracks, to listen to the beginning of the track and the start of the track, to listen to the percussive sounds and to the, you know, the synth pads, the hi hats and the the drum and the uh, kick drums, to see how well those tracks mesh together. That for me is true, true to the art of DJing, and I think that's one of the things that that I like is that um, I like the idea of, of taking music from different genres. I mean, you know, I look at organic house is, is becoming quite popular now, um, you know, and you've got some of the more darker progressive, you've got the more uplifting melodic techno, but finding gems from each of those genres allows me to create this journey and this story that I want to tell in that one hour mix. Um, because of the you know the 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 way that that particular genre the uh, the emotions that it it, it creates and that the way it makes you feel, so um, yeah I'm I'm really open to the idea. I was you know just this afternoon I was in the office just finishing up some stuff and I was listening to Sasha and Diggers at Coachella um, this year, and um, I don't know if you heard that, but it was just a fantastic fantastic mix. And at the end of the, the mix, I don't know who dropped this, whether it was Sasha or, or Diggers, but he dropped um, A Higher State of Consciousness by uh, Josh Wink. And it just blew me away because I was not expecting it. And I was a little bit gutted because I actually thought about that track a, a few months back and thought, you know what, that would sound really good in the middle of my mix. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking about downloading it. Obviously, I haven't got it. Downloading it and putting it into something. And then today, I hear this track at the end. And it was just, and I loved it. What I loved about it was their ability to be able to confidently drop a track in that you wouldn't expect to fit in with the rest of that, that, that set. And it just sounded amazing. And I, and I, was, I was humbled and blown away. It really was. Yeah, it, it's it's a few things there to to to, to unpack. 
I think the arrangement of progressive music is different than your classic stuff. I think most house tunes were probably arranged a little bit because because that was the nature. Most house tunes were arranged a little bit like a pop song. Well, they would have a kind of intro, certain amount of beats. They would need to get very quickly to a vocal or a chorus, and then they would repeat that, and then you would mix out at the end. And there was a lot of that where it was kind of like beats, something's happening, the main song, stop, mix out. And I think progressive changed the linear, the linear sort of approach was different than the kind of needing to go up and down. And that's why you've got this whole sort of plethora of different genres that work together in a, in a progressive style because the mood you're in can very much determine which pick which tunes you pick rather than thinking, right, I'm going to make everybody dance with a song they know. I'm going to get all the girls on the dance floor, which is, you know, a tried and tested sort of DJ method back in the day was you get girls dancing, you get the lads dancing. Oh. Years and years ago, nobody ever talks about this. It's not as if I'm coming up with something that nobody knows about. But back in the day, there was a whole point of the night where they played floor fillers. That that was that was a known thing, floor fillers. They played the big tunes at the beginning of the night to get everybody on the dance floor. Once they'd got you on the dance floor, then they would sort of take you through the education. And somewhere along the line, you know, different types of house music would kind of like, you'd have your DJs playing certain side sets. Well, they really could play 13 or 14 tracks in an hour because the tracks were really only about five minutes long. You get some progressive tracks, they're like, probably the average progressive track is eight minutes long. But the, the producers are putting together all this space for you to mix. They're layering in sounds, the percussion. They're doing a lot of the work for you. And then when you're then choosing these tracks and you've got other tracks in your mind, you're starting to mix in your head where you want these. And I think that's, like you said, that's the art of kind of progressive. And I think really any major sort of DJ, if you look back um, at DJs from Giles Peterson to James Lavelle, um, you've basically got DJs that would play all these different styles because they had so much music they wanted to play. And they weren't bothered about out and out making people dance because they almost knew that what they were doing was giving people an education. But people, if they wanted to be dancing and expressing themselves to that music, would ultimately dance. And, and there's a little bit of that lost now, really. I think we don't have that as much. Um, you know, Sasha and Digweed is an interesting one because I they would never, never, I, I don't think they would ever say that they play progressive anymore. Digweed plays quite slow techno, doesn't he, really? Yep. I think quite a lot of that set, the Coachella set's actually on our podcast on Progressive House. And I put it on there because I thought now and again, I want to put a mix on from the kind of, you know, the big names, but modern mixes of their stuff because people get caught up a lot in the old stuff mm -hmm. they played. And actually, it's it's pretty far from where it is now. But they do, those two in particular do still have a very unique style together. I mean, towards the end of that set, um, there's absolutely, some absolutely fantastic tracks. A couple of tracks that I played at Early Doors Club, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting when you kind of take what progressive is and then you listen to what you think it is now. 
And they're really, like you mentioned in there, and you mentioned South America, really kind of Hanan since 99. It's probably been the only DJ that I can really think of that has completely and utterly stuck to his guns about playing a style. And that style, I guess, is, mel- is mel- a melodic style. He, he yeah. can go quite heavy, but it's melodic. Now, this is the big question. And I'm glad we've moved on to this because when I meet people that are into progressive house or into this style of music, it's a dreamer's music, right? 100%. 100%. It takes you away and mm-hmm. you don't go, oh, how can I dance to this? You're just as happy listening to it. You're just as happy having it wash over. Oh, you I, can, I, can, I, I can dance to it. I can definitely dance to it. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, do you know what? I went to, recently went to a um, to a gig in London. It, it's one of the uh, it's one of the, the stations that I play in. Uh, you probably know them. They're called Subcode. Um, Mark and Simon are the owners of that, and are a fantastic bunch of people. And I went to their second birthday party in London um, and they held a, a gig and all the DJs came and played. Um, I was just new in, so I, I didn't uh, I didn't play a set, but I went to meet everybody and just to sort of put faces to names. And um, yeah, I, I was on the dance floor and I probably got on the dance floor about half 10. And I didn't come off till probably about two because it was the first time in ages that I'd, you know, you, you, you don't get, progressive house gigs every week do you anymore you don't get them as often and so when the opportunity arises to be able to not just be in a club environment but to be being in the club environment um you know engulfed with that beautiful sound that's there for all those hours all I wanted to do was just stay on the dance floor and not come off and yeah it was so yeah 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 I can definitely dance to progressive house yeah we we had um my friends, um, my old friends, Gaz and Baz, we went to the 303 gig. I think it was back in, this will be back in 2018 now. And um, the 303 guys are, are wonderful. They they really are sort of picking up the mantle in the Northwest for, for progressive, uh, certainly on a, on, a, on a slightly bigger scale, you sort of three to 400, 500 numbers. They play at the Invisible Wind Factory. We went down there and the gig started in the day. They had Nick Warren, Guy J and Henry Sayers oh, and Spooky wow. and it was just like those guys one after another and we did the same thing we just we just remained on the dance floor and and you know the whole thing you know to hear such quality DJs that you know pioneers of the scene just like you said the quality of the music not only kind of the quality as in it was good music but the quality as in the audio quality you know we've come a long way with technology of sound digital speakers digital sound systems lighting everything else that comes with the kind of modern clubbing and similar sort of thing to you we we came away from that gig just like probably the best gig we'd we'd been to since we were going to cream you know 20 years prior to that and you're right it was a case of just being immersed for like six seven hours we stayed over we stayed over in 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 liverpool and and came back the next day and we just couldn't stop talking about it 
And even now, it, I still listen to the set because they recorded the sets from it. I think the Henry Sires ones, and, and the, they didn't record the guy J one. That's really annoying because he was just that off the scale good. Um, but yeah, I know I know what you mean. When you get it over here, you've got to get involved. And um, this moves us on neatly, doesn't it? This moves us on neatly because you, you, I want I wanted to talk to you about where you're at now. I wanted to talk to you about your DJing, what you're doing there. And then let's talk after that about some of the plans we've been discussing. So yeah. tell us, tell us the kind of juice of going, right, been a fan, had a dabble, now I'm back. Tell us what you're up to, what your what your thoughts are. Yeah. So um yeah, so for me the the actual kind of story really starts um at the beginning of the pandemic as it does with a lot of people that took on different hobbies that uh, they, they could do at home. Um, I'd always wanted to, to DJ. I never really got a chance to, to really throw myself into it because life kind of took over a little bit and there were so many distractions. But the pandemic was the perfect opportunity. You know, we were stuck indoors for 23 hours in the day, one hour to go and do some exercise. So I, I, I kept on... Uh, 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 sort of t- taking my sort of walks and hikes and small runs, which I do to this day. So that's actually a good thing that I've um, I've maintained that um, even after lockdowns were lifted. But um, but I kind of thought to myself, look, I- I'm- I've got all of this time. Um, what can I what can I do? And I- and I kind of just kept obviously listening to a lot of music because I was you know had my headphones on and I'd, I'd be listening to a lot of stuff, but. I thought, look, this is a, this is the perfect opportunity for me to really um, not just start DJing, but to really delve into it, into the nuances of of, of how to DJ. So I, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos, as you do, and there is some really, really good stuff. You know, if anyone listening that's want, wants to get into DJing, there's so much rich information on YouTube now that really can help you to understand the technicalities of DJing not just the you know not just all of the um the hype and the buzz and all the the fanfare but the actual technicalities of what how DJs do what they do so I kind of started to watch a lot of that and that then inspired me to order my first controller so I ordered the DDJ 400 which was my first controller fantastic piece of kit to get started on really good bit of kit um, downloaded uh, Beatport, downloaded like I think it was twenty tracks, and the rest is the rest is history. I I spent hours and hours um, just really immersing myself into the music, into the sounds, into learning about how music is structured, how tracks work together, why they don't work together. Um, I then went into the, you know, into the understanding of of, of phrase mixing um, and EQ mixing, and really understanding, as I say, how to to put all of these these tracks in together to, to you know, for for that set to become a story, a soundscape and a story that I wanted to try and tell to other people. Um, and so yeah, um, it was it was lots and lots of hours of, of practice, um, but I got I got to a stage kind of you know, a year and a half in where I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm okay now. I'm at a, at a standard where 
I feel comfortable to want to play out. But obviously, we were still in the midst of this uh, this pandemic. So what do I do? You know, um, how do I share my sound? You know, and then I obviously was recording some of my stuff and sharing it with friends and that kind of stuff. But it just wasn't enough. And I kind of felt frustrated by it. So I then was watching something on, on YouTube about streaming and the, the you know, DJing, DJs were streaming online during the pandemic. And that then, you know, it sort of sparked my interest around um, approaching um, some online radio stations. Um, and the first um, station that kind of gave me a look in was uh, 4TM, For The Music. Um, and um, a guy called Chris Haynes, who's the founder of that place, uh, a fantastic guy. He uh, he listened to one of my mixes and said, "Yeah, you know, we 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 want someone that that, that comes with a progressive and melodic sound. So we you know would love to give you um, a spot." And yeah, that was my first kind of venturing into the world of of actually live mixing online in front of hundreds of people, which was which was super super exciting. This this is um this is great like information because one of the the whole points of this in conversation with is that this it would be it would be different but and difficult maybe to go and try and interview all the big djs and get them set them down who are already professionals and it's not at the same time the same as interviewing a professional footballer but but then going interviewing somebody that plays sunday sort of football for the pub team where where for me in conversation works is that still i believe fully is that the the djing bit is not where it stops i think you need to have something about you you need to have a bit of confidence but at the same time be willing to take a risk reach out to people collaborate talk to different individuals learn put the work in and it, it is quite a lonely process sometimes because it's these days obviously a lot of it is is online listening to music you've got to put the hours in to listen to music like you said you can listen to hundreds of tracks and the world would have you believe there's too many djs yeah okay maybe there is but this is the whole point of this series is that within this scene what you've got is lots of different ways of getting ahead and achieving what you want to achieve whether it was Gav that came on and started in new records, whether it's Lloyd that's doing the pick and mix, and then all of a sudden he, like you, decided, I spend all this time listening to music. Why don't I try and learn how to mix it? This is the fascination for me. This is what I want to share these conversations with people because whoever you are and you're sat at home and you've got this passion for music, there is something in the scene you could be doing. If ultimately it is about this music, you're either going to have to get your hands dirty at some point, either promoting it, making it, DJing it, talking about it, writing content <laughs> about it. And, it. and it is addictive. There is times, you'll probably feel the same when I'm like, well, I'm doing all this stuff, what am I doing? And I need mm-hmm. to concentrate on my family. I need to concentrate on my, on my wife and I need to put this down. And, and, it's, and it's all encompassing. The difference is, and this is what I'm saying, is that, to make something happen, you have to actually make something happen because you could just make a mix and go, that's great. But what is it that compels you to share it? 
What is it that compels you to listen to somebody else's mix and go, oh, what are they doing? How have they done that? You know, what is it about Guy J's tracks or Lost and Found, the, you know, the DJs, the producers that are all on Lost and Found? Why does that sound different than this? Why does Sudbeat sound different than... And once you go down that rabbit hole, it's endless. But I, th- I throw it back to you, really, is when you've done this and you've kind of reached out to, like, your subcodes, to your man there on the radio station, have you had that moment where you go, oh, imposter syndrome, what am I doing? And all the time, all the time. Even now, even now I'm sat here having a conversation with you, Danny, <laughs> and I just feel like, wow, what, what, what's going on here? How am I able to speak to someone like Danny Jarvis? This is ridiculous. I've already started <laughs> DJing a few years ago, and I'm talking to somebody who, you know, let's be honest, you've been in the scene for a long, long time, and... I'm going to look at myself. I've listened to most of your mixes and I'm blown away now. And I just think I, I look at, I listen to your stuff and I just think, how has he done that? You know, and I, I don't know if you, I don't know when you're listening to other people, other DJ, but I'm really, I'm really OCD about my mixes. And I just get really frustrated because I, I listen back at all my mixes and I get, I get really hacked off because I pick up on all the little mistakes. I'm sure the average person that's out there that's listening into the you know the mix in its entirety, they're going to be like, okay, this is great, sounds good, everything's fine. I've got to that stage where I know that the sound is going to sound fine for the masses, but for me, it's really really frustrating because I pick up on all the little nuances and all the things that I know I should have done better. And then what I'll even do is I'll even then when I've listened to the mix, I'll go back and I'll do it all over again. And I'll make sure that those little things that were wrong the last time, I correct them. And that's not me just being super anal. It's just me. For me, you know, it's that journey. You know, and then when you when you talk about the guy Jays, and you know, you talk about Hernan, and you talk about you know Diggers and Sasha. I mean, they, you know, they their mixes are. It's it's just this journey, and you as a DJ you're aspiring that one day your mixes will be at that level. You won't, may not get the success. Um, you know, I'm in my forties now. I should have done what I decided to do, to do 20 years ago, but you still, you're in DJing because you love what you do and you want to become better every single day. And that's why you do it. And that's why I do it. And I'm sure that, that I, you know, a lot of DJs that listen to this probably share the, the same thoughts as I do. Yeah. I mean, the, you know thanks for the kind words like earlier there's no two ways about it that my biggest critic is my is myself with 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 what i'm doing but what i would say overall is it's a bit it's a bit like the ten thousand hours thing you know they say in sport you know swinging the golf club david beckham putting the ball down and kicking the ball curling it curling it curling it but then if if you, if I'm more honest about that, if you if you extrapolate that theory, what you've then got is you've got a technology of balls being lighter, right? Beckham Beckham didn't kick a leather casey like that. Mm-hmm. He started kicking lighter footballs. He started having football boots that were made of different materials. He had the skill, and the technology changed. And what I'm trying to say here is that there are many many elements to how to get better. There was a there was a period in my life when I had a tragedy. I won't go into it now. It may it may come up again. 
And the tragedy forced me to look at my life very differently. And I decided to take up um, marathon running. I decided to honour the kind of very good sporting background and abilities that I had at about 32 and I started running again. Now, the reason I mention that is because with marathon running, you do, you, you're you not just running, you don't go out and run a marathon. You, you train and you train and you train, you do hours and hours of running. So back then, I think the little iPod, um, the little iPods had come out, the really, the really thin ones. So this is sort of 2010. You still had to plug the jack in, so they weren't wireless or anything. But they were very, very tiny and very, very small, and you could get them up to, I think, 16 gig or something but you didn't need to so my, my wife bought me one and I filled it full of mixes that I knew would be long that would be totally perfect for running so what I ended up doing was loading up all these DJs that I really liked Guy J being one of them and what would happen is I would I would have for about a month these mixes on and I'd play them over and over again that I'd, I'd time them to where I was running up big hills and I knew that this point in the CD guy Jay would get to this point in the CD you know in, in the CD sorry on the on the mix or actually on CDs because some of them were CDs and I would emulate this really big progressive track going up a hill knowing that they were going to drop something and I would get a downhill now if this sounds odd but if you think about what you're doing you're listening to people representing music and energy. And at the time, the running, the melodicness and also the repetitiveness of it was all like your footsteps and your breathing. I found it very meditative at points, but I was also studying everything they were doing. Now, me having come from vinyl, you had to, like your beat matching, you had to do. Mm-hmm. When you played progressive, you had to be good at it to make it work because of all of the melodic atmospherics went out of time if you were heavy-handed so I spent a long time when I was younger really really practicing mixes so when you take all this because I had a hiatus like a lot of people when you take all this and then I decided to come back to DJing there was hours and hours and hours of kind of research in my head that was done about what Guy J was doing to make that record do that and what equipment he was using what he was playing, what he was doing, that he was mixing at a certain pace, a certain BPM that was enabling him to play heavy tracks that when they're speeded up, you would never imagine playing with a slower deep house track. But because he'd slowed those down and sped the, the deep house track up, what you what you found was this beautiful middle meeting of these two tunes. So I learned a lot from him and Hanan. They were my two major kind of influences i've long since stopped listening to to degree and sasha and those sorts of djs and i was into this more kind of 121 to 125 period of well period or, or sort of beat space that's very very difficult to get right unless you have a go so for me this gap that i had coincided with when I thought like progressives coming back I did the classic thing I bought some decks I had all my music I'd been listening to people that were DJing on digital format and I was trying to do it again on vinyl 
the two the two are not in any way shape or form the same so what ended up happening was i went in the garage freezing standing there getting the record back waiting mixing it getting it wrong was in the mall the way back listening to it came in and my wife said are you all right and i went <laughs> no she went what's up <laughs> i said oh, i've wasted my money hate it she went what do you mean you hate it you love this music i went yeah but what i've been listening to what i want to do i can't do on that that's just not what i want to do it wasn't that i couldn't mix i was yeah i was a bit sloppy it was because it wasn't fun to do it the the techniques that were being done were being done on different formats guy j wasn't just lowering the bass he was yeah. removing it from tracks uh-huh. he was looping something over and over and over that would have been impossible to do on a record you couldn't have done it on a record it's not possible so my brain was like right i hate this i hate the format i don't hate the music that's my story anyway it's not you know if it helps but we all all of us have this bit where you've got to absolutely practice and listen and find your person your god but the other side of it is listening to your own mixes over and over because the, the final part of it, I'll shut up in a minute. I'm on a rant. No, go ahead. This is good. Testing yourself with hand speed. Hand speed is really important. And it's not only hand speed, but it's also having a system that enables you to look at the decks the way you want them and know how you have all the controls set up so that when you need to make decisions, you're you're in an orderly fashion. Now, that kind of goes with my OCD a bit. I've got a lot of OCD. And I mix what, what, what I've started to do is I've started to um, to use both my hands to be quite dexterous in terms of the right um, channel and the left channel, you know, and really using both my hands to to then work with rather than relying on my my, my main hand hand which I write with, which is my right hand. So, and that was quite difficult at the beginning because I wasn't used to doing things with my left hand as much. But now, having spent you know hours and hours in front of these decks doing these things um, I've become a lot more confident using my left hand and that's made a huge difference to the way in which I can maneuver around the decks um, and how I can then manipulate the sound because I've got two hands to work with I'm not just relying on the one to do everything does that make sense yeah no it makes total sense it was definitely something you're definitely right you 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 naturally you know most people they write with the right hand they wouldn't dream of picking up a pen and writing with the left but you would pick up a drink and you would pass it somebody but you would still drink with your right hand and what i learned very quickly like you say is that really what's going on is that you you can't be cro- you can't be crossing over right, with, right. with your arm over to press the play button no. you just need to be more confident hitting the play button with your left hand mm-hmm. i mean it's i don't know if it's the same with you but it just just the play button you, yeah. you still see people hit the play button with their right yeah. hand Hands, across the yeah. deck now yeah. if you then take that a step forward and you want to start using this hand for your channel slider then it needs to be the same weight that you would use your right right now right. you're only going to do that by practicing it practicing yeah yeah. You know, this is this is how I learned to kick with my left. My dad said, you'll score more goals if you kick with your left foot. I was useless with my left foot, but I wasn't after long. 
because the thought of scoring more goals was more important than being being worried about my left foot. Even if I stuck it out at the right time with the right weight, you might score a goal. So you start practicing. You just start practicing. So the live stream stuff, you mentioned the live streaming stuff for me when I did it all through lockdown for hours and hours and hours. I didn't tell anybody who was doing this. Why would you? But each time I was going to do a mix, I would challenge myself on practicing different things. So I might do more transitions in the mix than normal. Mm-hmm. I might do more quick mixes. I might do more drops. I might try different things. Now, there's a million buttons and toys and tools on the modern equipment, but you need one. For me, the most important thing is your ears. Mm-hmm. If you don't hear when something's wrong, you're in trouble. You need need to question it because if you've got the right equipment around you, you will know if the sound is right. You know, you're touching your gains a little bit to 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 neaten it up. You know, you're making sure all your 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 green and your your orange and your red lines are all where they should be. But your ears are the most important tool. Do you do you mix in in your headphones? Because I. I, no. I, it's really weird. I, I do. I, and I think that's more habitual than anything. And I think, as I've recently started started to play out at a few events, I've, I've deliberately taken my headphones off so that I can listen to the sound from the speakers. I can see like I'm, I'm more connecting with the crowd. I'm not just you know in my sound and in my in my headphones. But when I'm at home or if I'm I'm creating a, a mix to upload. I have I have my headphones on, and the only reason I do that not because I, I you know I don't want to hear it from the the speakers, but I tend to find that when I'm in my headphones, I kind of go into a zone where I I'm able to hear very distinctive sounds and frequencies that you may not necessarily pick up coming out of a speaker, you know um, the little nuances and the little elements of um, of atmospheric synths that maybe are going around that you're trying to maybe highlight a certain aspect of that sound so you're you know you're increasing the mids a little bit or you're reducing the bass line there and for me that can really for me only comes from um, from mixing in my headphones I know that there are lots of DJs that as soon as they've they've mixed out they put their headphones take their headphones off and then they listen to, to what's coming from the speakers but yeah that's my my take on it yeah, no, I, I I don't think there's any right or wrong way. I mean, it, it depends on your environment completely because right. I'm very fortunate that I've got a, a large detached garage from the house. Right. And the monitors that I use are, are monsters. They're Mackie self-powered mm-hmm. monitored speakers. They're, they're huge. They're my wife's old singing equipment. You know, they will fill a room, wow. okay. no problem. And I have them, one live down, facing up and one um they're about six so aren't they're about just about as wide as i am apart that's kind of how i like it wow and one is one is basically up on a on a on a tripod so it's, yeah. it's about ear level and the other one's sort of pointing up now they are remarkable speakers considering they're probably 25 years old they're remarkable yeah. and what that enables me to do is hear everything in perfect right. clarity we're not right. talking about they're not de- I'm not I've not got them deafening but because they're big speakers yeah you can hear everything. they do a lot of stuff now yeah. if I was in the house and when I prep when I do stuff on on tracks when I prep my sets more or less everything is done on my um beats proper light headphones mm-hmm. 
it's different right it's a bit like when you give somebody a mix i always say to somebody listen to your mix in your car listen to your mix on your headphones listen to your mix on a big speaker it will sound different you will hear different things but i just overall i think it comes with i just think it comes with experience knowing like what to hear also in in the modern age there are a lot of tracks and in the old days you knew exactly what a record was going to do when because you bought it you spent a lot of money on it and you played it over and over and over these days i think looking at the waveforms you can see what's going to happen so you could almost like guess that something major is happening at this point which is which is great because i'm much more visual person so i'm a better yeah. dj now because i can see the waveforms yeah. but i still think there's an element at which when you want that to click in you need to know where it is in the record yeah agreed and, and that is a minor adjustment you know a very minor adjustment and the best djs in the world get that right mm-hmm. but mixing in itself is a whole we could do a whole podcast on it because <laughs> what i found is when i when i get in front of a when i'm with somebody else they're on before me or they're coming on afterwards nobody does it the same it mix the same way no nobody does Remember the same nick way rogers, nick roger twisting a million different things and and me just thinking i have got i've got no idea what he's doing here and he had mm-hmm. a very fluid he's got a very fluid style of stuff in and stuff out and he's taking the mids out here and he's taking the mids out there i'm probably very mathematical probably like guy j i'm very mathematical with how i approach it mm-hmm. and therefore even the kind of the way i use the the decks the volumes I'm kind of robotic. I kind of like I almost reset again. But don't you find it? In. Don't you find it fascinating to be able to just sit there and absorb um, absorb how other people mix? Because you're right. Everyone's different. Nobody, no two people are the same. There's no way that we can both have the same twelve tracks and that we're going to mix them exactly the same way. It's it's near on impossible. <laughs> but for me, I find that super fascinating to be able to sit there and just observe. You know, someone that. Like we're talking about it right now and I'm getting really excited just talking about it and being able to share something that I do every day or every week. And, and I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it in my headphones. And it's me doing it. This, this is a chance for me to be able to hear it from someone that does what I do, albeit very differently. But for me to be able to see that, you know, and to see what is it that they're doing in it and why are they doing that? What has that done to the mix and how has that enhanced their their mix for me that that's really really fascinating i love the idea of that so i yeah. can't wait to i can't wait to see you mix in person one day really soon yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'll be disappointed no, um, you'll be fine. <laughs> it's, it's um yeah it's an interesting thing like richard richard trout and i dj together obviously a lot now and i remember the first time i went over to his place and we were going to do a back-to-back session and i was i was nervous about it because I like I, I like to be behind the decks myself. I like to have everything the way I like it. I'm I'm more than confident when I'm on my own. You know, occasionally, even, even all of us just need to know what does that button do? What does that do? He's he's got you know Mark threes. I hadn't played on them very often. My setup's different, so I'd ask him a few questions that were like about the tech, about the technology. Mm-hmm. So there's always kind of that nervousness about right, what what is this? What is that? But when when you play back to back what's different is you're you're very much using the same controls after that person that right. person is leaving you with their track they yeah. might point and say this and you're gonna then either know that record or slightly know it 
and on thinking on your feet you need to think about right what what is going to go with that and that's where really as you get to know somebody better and time better you begin to morph into being like a good back-to-back dj mm-hmm. partner dave and i were very good at that dave ferno and i we we got used to that but we would also do three records on three records off so we could take it somewhere the other person could take it somewhere else and then you yeah. weren't sort of over the top of each other trying to worry every five seconds about what you were going to mm-hmm. play and so there's lots of different styles but the way you use the mixing desk can be can be quite quite different mm-hmm. um and i am a bit of a perfectionist i guess i do i do want everything sort of sort of perfect um but at the same time like richard said to me God, you know sometimes i just i just can't understand how you can get it like absolutely perfect but then in my head i think well it's mathematics this is it's a mathematical thing like it is mathematics there are there aren't odd numbers of beats they're dead equal 100%. so when when you can now visualize the wave format and you can see everything if i hear something and think of something mm-hmm. i know I, can, I know i can make it happen when you've got loops and extra things you can do mm-hmm. i know i can make it happen because it's mm-hmm. a mathematical thing and you're not in a rush to quickly that record's going to end and fizzle out and it has a fade out that none of the records do that anymore so you mm. can you can be playing a track and you just know at the end that it's going to reduce down to maybe just a minimal bass line and a kick and yeah. maybe a couple of sounds and you can keep those sounds take them into the next track and then therefore not only are you thinking creatively but you're also then leaving parts of the desk going and i think that's where when you look at the djs and go what are they doing is because for the first time ever you can actually see something mm. the waveforms you can hear it and you can see the equipment and you go i don't know what he's doing and mm-hmm. I, it is fascinating <laughs> because in the old days in the old days they took yeah, a record of and put another so, record on yeah they did an amazing mix and you were like god they're amazing but they were actually if you looked at it you would just see somebody mixing two records and and touching the plate and mm-hmm. Now it's yeah, it's different. It's very different. It's very different. It's funny you saying that. You know, I've always thought it would be great to get twelve tracks and give five of your closest DJs. Here you go. What would you? Here's do twelve. With, what would you do, do with them? Well, yeah. Because it's that's actually a really that's actually a really good that's a really good idea, isn't it? If you think about okay. it, if you had twelve tracks, because obviously the arrangement and in terms of what are you going to play, they're twelve tracks. You know you're going to put some intro tracks in there. You're going to put some ones with a driving bass line, maybe a few that are really sort of, you know, euphoric and melodic, you know, um, something a little bit dark. And, you, you you know, you get a real eclectic sort of mix of tracks. Give them to your best mate, the DJs, and say, what are you going to do with this? Let's, 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 let's regroup in a week with our individual mixes and listen to them together. That, that's a really great, I like that idea, that's fantastic. It, it is, it is. Well, well, we should do it. We should mean you should do that. We should just- That sounds really, really fun. Yeah, that'll be up for that. It's, it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like, that's, that's what being creative, I guess, is. You know, if you were given a, an easel and, a, and a, an A3 sheet of paper and you yeah. were given only a certain color set of felt tips you know what is going to happen is you're going to get the same size and you're going to get the same colors you're not going to get the same result even though they're using the same tools Mm -hmm. and and i think that's where 
probably you know when you start to get into is this art and is this an art this is the art of djing is you go right there's your tools off you go uh, there's no rules but you've got to use these tools and it's got to be music that's like that kind of it and yeah. um, I, I, I sometimes sometimes i wonder where, when i'm gonna stop doing all this and i think like if we, if we sort of bring the this podcast back to kind of where we're where we're headed so yeah we're going off on a tangent now it, aren't we yeah it's, well it, it, these are good tangents because is it that you just you're passionate about the scene or is it actually the art of djing or is it talking about it or is it going to events you know what is it that you probably think to yourself am i closestly aligned to God, and wow. one thing i can always say is i've always done mixes for, mm-hmm. for me I'm probably likely to, if I can, always run. Sometimes I run without music. Lately I have been. But when you've got a big long run, there's nothing better than having a load of tunes that you've that you've got this headspace and you're just gonna go on this like mad journey. It's it's almost better than clubbing because you go running through the woods or the fields and you're listening to all this music. And I often used to think, God, what, I wonder if Guy J ever thought people would run around <laughs> like fields listening to this music. So I think I will always probably curate music together. Um, I, I don't know how much of the... Well, look the at, look at Nick, Nick Warren. He's coming into his late, late 50s now and he's still going strong. I mean, if you go to, you know, to Argentina, I mean, he's practically a god there. It's his second home, isn't it? And, yeah. you know... But it's not. There doesn't look any like there's any signs of him abasing that. He he wants to he wants to play music. He wants to share his sound with people that love the sound that he he he, he showcases. Why is why should that have a finite period? Why should you cap it because you think you're a certain age? You know, for me, music is something that's intrinsic in what I do in everyday life. I think you you mentioned something about when you go for your run. I go for my walks in the morning, and I put my headphones on and I just disconnect from all of the humdrum of the world and all the problems and all the issues that we all have to face every day. And I disconnect and I just go into the park and I take my hour walk and my stroll. And I just really, I just get lost in it. And I just think that, and I feel good for it. You know, I feel, I feel energized. It's almost like a therapy, I think for me. Um, So yeah, no, Danny, you keep doing what you're doing for as long as you can do it, man. I, I don't think there right. should be a time limit at all, really. Well, you've you've hit on a couple of things there, really, that that, that sort of tell a story from from my pandemic experience. You know, Lost In, the actual name of the the series that I did, it was originally I used to do. I used to go away with my wife. We'd go away somewhere. I'd experience these different temperatures, different cultures, different things, and I would make a mix after I'd been there sort of inspired by what I'd seen or what I'd done, I would make a mix and that would be my reflection of my time there. And I would do the album artwork and all the rest of it. I used to lost in Hong Kong, lost in every everywhere I'd been, I did a lost in. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic was the bit where lost in became lost in, lost in mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. weirdness, lost in, but I wanted it to be lost in something positive. And that's that's the same thing is that the the melodic style, the kind of like bringing people together at a time when we all felt isolated and disassociated. That's where the music for me was the forefront. I think once the pandemic, and we were talking about this last last um, week with, with Lloyd, is where it then became sort of 
where does this need to go to it it really the combination of all the different things I was doing it needed to be I need to do events and I need to be DJing in front of people because we've got this community and actually a lot of them live up here we could actually do this we could actually see each other rather than being through a screen or through an app that we're all talking through and through various cameras in my in my in my you know garage where for so much of the time that I was doing that it was for my mental health it was completely yeah. for that and it was for other people you know it was other people using it for the same thing so I think there's definitely a massive connection between probably more maybe even more so this style of music or this sort of electronic music because it is mood driven it is atmospheric it is gentle and it's beautiful or it can be driving and it can be kind of energetic and mm -hmm. different rhythms and yeah it's it's you know you mentioned Nick Warren and you know he really has stuck to his guns as well similar to Hernan yeah. they're similar in that way that they've they've stayed with a music that is probably I think we both talked about this before not necessarily in line with the the English culture we're not chilled we're not melodic we're not dreamers we're not easy go lucky we're kind of mm -hmm. stressful and trend driven and like highs big highs whoa big lows whoa up down we're we're, we're an interesting nation one, we... one of one of the conversations that i had recently with somebody about this was um was basically that if you look at some of the the sort of youngsters these days you know the ones that are in their sort of 20s and early 30s for them you know they've taken on tech house tech house is a big seen at the moment amongst that age demographic i think that the dmb drum, the drum and bass scene is still quite big as well amongst that uh, that group as well and i think that those types of genres i think that they provide the sense of instant gratification that maybe the people in oh sorry the, the people that are listening to progressive that that immediate crescendo, that immediate high is not necessarily there because there's a build-up, there's a anticipation, there's a progression of sound that takes you to that point where you get that release that you want. And I think that people in our age group, you and I, we've come to learn the beauty of, of waiting for that sound to evolve into something that you want it to. Whereas I think some of the younger guys, I think that you know, in everything in life, for them, it's that instant rush, that it's that immediate, I want it now. And I think that that's where maybe, you know, we need to kind of get uh, people to, to really be, um, get the youngsters to get to really understand the, the progressive house. It does provide that, but there's a little bit of a, a weight and that you've got to really absorb and enjoy that that build up, not just expect it to kind of, you know, give you that kick that you're looking for. Um, your interview with Lloyd for me was a massive, um, you know, breath of fresh air because it was somebody that understands what we like about Progressive House, but he's kind of, you know, half our age. And for me, that it was really good to see that. But what's also frustrating is that there's not that many more Lloyds out there. I haven't seen that many more Lloyds. So if you go to Argentina, there's so many um really really good producers out there that are coming into the scene that are at lloyd's age that are kind of get that understand it i mean you've got the likes of you know you've got well, you've got so many you've got um 
is it what's his name? It's Arias. Um, Arias. Uh, there's another guy called Camilo San Clemento. There's Emmy Galvan. Um, Ez Quiller's name. Sorry. These are guys that are in their sort of twenties and thirties that are producing progressive music that you and I are, are, are putting in our mixes these days. Um, but we're not getting that following from that age group in the UK. Why, why do you think that is, Danny? What's your take on the whole thing? Well, it's a couple of things, really. I mean, I guess there's a few things we know much more about the science of the, of the brain, I guess, and certainly within terms of like culture today, you know, social media. Um, and I think dopamine is something that, you know, is a, is a chemical thing that all humans have. We yeah. are as humans addicted to dopamine. We want to feel good. We want to do things that make us feel instantly good. Um, you know, this is a huge topic of of social media is that really what it does is it, it preys on dopamine hits mm -hmm. whether it's hearts and likes whether it's shares a lot of it is centered around giving people quick hits and mm -hmm. and you know generally things have got quicker as well you know the old adage used to be that humans had um seven second memory i think it's down to like three mm -hmm. and it and we've evolved as a species very quickly because of the technology we've got but I think also, you know, you, when you mix that with where we place our importance in culture and society, we do want everything quick. You know, I'm in marketing. You are. There's mm -hmm. this whole thing that customers need this and customers want this mm -hmm. and customers need this. You can't get any customer service anymore. No. Customer service is non-existent. Oh, mm -hmm. sorry. Our system can't do that. Sorry, that's our policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that. We've come through an age where people expect everything really quickly and want everything really quickly they're not they're not actually patient patience mm -hmm. isn't taught and at the same time when you put kind of what we're talking about which is dance music into a club environment add alcohol add drugs add all the rest of it yeah the dopamine level hit is going to need to be massive mm -hmm. and also kind of social media has made it that a certain set of djs or a certain style of music you can probably fit a mm. much more representative um re what's the word i'm looking for you, you can easily encapsulate what a tech mm. house does in mm -hmm. a tiktok video or right. a short reel right. on right. youtube and god right. that's amazing the drop is good don't get me wrong listen i've got no problem with tech house a huge amount of tech house mm -hmm. in my sense mm -hmm. but the, i know exactly what you're talking about is that the age demographic now this isn't to like chastise the young are the young and there are Lloyds out there here's the challenge and this is this is where you and I are, are trying to meet and we'll come on to this mm -hmm. it it is still the same as the old days if there are people that are out there that are into what you're into and then you meet somebody else and you go to a gig and there's 10 people there and there's 10 people there is how do you reach more people now I'm not talking about I'm not talking about social media reach. I'm not talking about paid advertising. How do you slowly, slowly gather people that are really into what is in this country a more niche side of progressive house? Well, you do it by uniting all the people that are in it. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, agreed. It, it, it's a, you, you mentioned there's not many gigs in London. There's a few people that I speak to online and they're like, oh, you know, it's good to see what you're doing up in the north. There's none of this in London. Well, there is. There's pick and mix. If, if yeah. you're in a progressive house, go go to a pick and mix event. If mm -hmm. you're in London, go 
he's playing the same music I am. He's playing it differently, like we all would. Yeah, okay. Lloyd is younger, so he's not going to maybe drop some of the tunes that I would drop. But that's only because I'm dropping a nostalgic set mm-hmm. of music to the people that are there because I can tell their age. They're in front of me. Go support these mm-hmm. events. Yeah, get involved. They're not going to get bigger by themselves. It doesn't put it oh, God, Progressive House used to be brilliant. Go. Mm-hmm. If, if you, if you, if you want to go, but you can't go, buy a ticket. If, yeah. if you really love the music and the tickets are tenner or eight quid, buy a ticket and don't go. But you're going to mm. help. You're going to help facilitate the promoters or the clubbers or the DJs that are putting on events, trying to get people there. And like you said last week, Lloyd, is he's got an amazing task ahead of him. But he's, but he's going for it. And shows like this, people like you, other people in the scene need to support that. We we can't rely on when I spoke to Nick Warren in 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 a field a few years ago. He came played at a festival. I played a, about an hour and a half before him, and afterwards I went in the field and I was chatting to him, and he 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 just said outright he said putting on big DJ names is not going to sell you events. It's not. It's all marketing. Now there's an element where you could say that it helps, but only if you've still got to reach people. He he knows that most of the work that goes into getting him um, his DJ work is through agents. Mm-hmm. And why is it why is he going to South America? Because his music's appreciated there. He's got a massive following there. There isn't this in the UK. He does play gigs in the UK, but the few and far between. You can't blame them. You can't say, well, they've abandoned us. They've they've left. Then no, they should no, be doing can't. more. I've seen. You know, they were always DJs. They weren't promoters. They were always DJs. And when mm-hmm. the music was popular here, they played here, and then it became more popular elsewhere. Yeah. You know, in fact, I respect him even more for sticking to his guns and going and finding where he's happiest. Mm-hmm. So, those of us that are doing this in the scene now. If if you want to make it happen, you've got to. But I think working collaboratively together is is the answer. Yeah, yeah. No, I 100% I agree with you. And I I think that I think that there needs to be um, a clear voice. Um, I think there needs to be a body group association where in, here in the UK, representing DJs, representing producers representing label owners, you know, uh, promoters of events, and then the fans, a place that they can get together, they can share ideas, they can share music, they can talk about stuff that is reflective of, of the mood of the scene, you know. And I think that, I think that th- those, those big headline DJs that come from the UK maybe need to, you know, give something back in terms of their time, you know where where you know they can be interviewed and they can talk and, and and they can they can get the UK scene back to where maybe it was at one point through their engagement, their involvement, and their support for you know for the cause because it is quite sad. You know, the, I went to that event I told you about you know, the subcode event in London recently, and apart from <clears throat> apart from the DJs and their their friends, I mean, you know, it was. It was really quiet. The event was really quiet, and that's no, no, that's no, no fault of the the you know subcode or for the the team behind it. It's just that that people aren't necessarily 
going out like they used to to these types of events. And I think that that's where you know um, a greater representation and a greater and a louder voice. Um, needs to be needs to be out there. So you know, this conversation with you for me, it was it was really exciting because I I want to feel like I'm giving something back to the the community. And you know, having this conversation, and if one more person that listens to this conversation or listens to one of my mixes is um, you know is uh, um, inspired to to become part of the scene and to want to get into the scene then that that for me is is massive yes i like to dj yes i like to go and play in front of people but just having one more person to be converted into what you and i know is a, a beautiful soundscape would be would be massive for me i would love that do you know what it, it there's a couple there's a few things right if, if you think about um what you're saying in essence right what what ends up happening is this is how societies come about this is how you have the, I don't know, the Northeast Jazz Society. Mm -hmm. That somebody has to take the mantle on to yeah. organize something, to reach out to people. And those numbers could be ones and five and then 10 into double digits, 30, 40. But here's, here's this is the key. This is the key. What, what happens? in life now is people take 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 don't give anything back and part of the problem with that is is that many many things have abused that let's take something very simple like an email right when i first when i was first in marketing and emails were a much newer thing you could say to somebody give us your email address and we're going to give you discount on entry they go, that's amazing, is is my email. And you'd honor it. You'd say, Yeah, okay, you'd email. Now, back in the day, how many emails did you get? You only got emails if you gave your email out. Oh. With that forward only a few years, and oh. suddenly you've got spam, junk. Oh. So nobody wants to give their emails. Nobody really wants to do something to get something, and it's vice versa. So here's been a huge problem with Progressive House UK. The idea behind it originally was that I had all this passion and I wanted to make content and I wanted to write. I was in a job that was a good, a really good job, but maybe wasn't creative enough for me. So I had time to use the skills I had and I would write all this content and I had all the CDs and all the global undergrounds and all the renaissance and had it. I used to take nice pictures and started off and it was all like talking about the albums, pretty much what will has superbly modernized mm -hmm. and what i wanted to do was just to share all this stuff with people i just wanted to share it with people but you you enter into this contract unfortunately that once sort of algorithms and things like that take over you can't actually reach the people mm. you can't actually reach the people even if they wanted it they're not seeing it anymore because you're using platforms that are designed to get you to pay hey to get your eyeballs so mm -hmm. one of the biggest problems we've got in modern day is that huge amounts of the platforms that we need to get to more people the game is rigged yeah. so an example would be let's say we, we've got x amount i think 500 subscribers to progressive house uk across the different things you've got people that are on google podcast people that are on apple podcasts and then you've got 
a huge amount of people that just stream directly off our website. If every single one of those people did me a favor and left a review on the podcast, said a few words, that instigates the algorithm. Right. Now, by by doing that, that would take them minutes. But do you know what's difficult? It's not easy. You ask, you ask, you ask. Diary of, Diary of a CEO, yeah? Biggest mm-hmm. podcast there is. He constantly comes on and says, all of you listen to this, hardly any of you subscribe. Because everybody thinks there's a catch. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give you my email. No, you're going to spam me. Mm. You're going you're gonna to give the data away. You're going to do this. Actually, if everybody who already listens and already gets the content for free mm-hmm. left an actual review and put some stars on, Apple would go, there's something here called Progressive Vouch UK, 500 people like it, and then it starts to tell everybody else. You put a picture on of a girl in a bikini and call it best progressive house tracks ever. <laughs> They're not even progressive house tracks. The eye candy, and you get, and and then it, all of a sudden you you just like. So the, it, this Jeez. is the battle. This is the real battle. It's not me turning up at the village hall saying everybody that likes progressive house, come, and you're all hoping and praying that at nine o'clock. The tea and biscuits are not stale. <laughs> People have turned up. You've got your little hi-fi with Sasha and Diggory ready to press play and listen to five minutes. You know, that is a that's probably as successful yeah. as where we are now, even yeah. with all this stuff. So this podcast, just me and you talking, it's been amazing how many people at the last Early Doors Club and the one before will stop me on the dance floor and actually tell me that they've listened to this podcast. Yeah. But they won't. They won't leave a review. They won't. No. They won't subscribe. No. And this is no. what you need. Unfortunately, you have to enter into this game of I do this, you do that, and then this. And it's exhausting. Why would Nick Warren or somebody like that even entertain this? Why would they even entertain it? Digweed hates social media. I know the person who does all these social media. Scott, he hates it. Why? Why would he like it? It's just, it's a rigged game. But he has to do it, but he gets somebody else to do it. We're not in that position. And the underground scene is not in that position. No. We have to trial and error everything, and it's hard work. Now, this isn't like get the violin out time, but it is. An op- this is me openly saying, listen, if you're listening to this podcast on whatever platform, make sure you subscribe or follow and leave a review. 100%. That will help. That will help more than people think to actually unify what we're doing and reach more people because dom there can't be just me and you (laughs) will from super progressive trouting you know subcode three there's got to be more people out there there's got to be more hundred percent so what are we going to do about it brother what are we going to do do you know what this is it's like the fact that we're having the conversation, the fact that we both understand the mountain that's got to be sort of climbed to get get anywhere with all of this, that that for me is great. I I definitely want to to do what I can to support the cause and to help Progressive House UK. You know, just the the fact that you know the other day I was just telling somebody that one of my mixes is on Progressive House UK, 
and it was like two down from Danny Howells. I was like, this is like, this is just insane. <laughs> well, you know, here's me, like my, my little self, you know, just mixing in a few years. And I'm, my, my mixes are alongside some of these really, really well-known established DJs. No, the residents on Progressive House UK, I've been listening to some of their mixes are just phenomenal. And I'm blown away by, you know, the caliber of the, the people that you've got, you know, um, as residents on, you know, on the, on the site. So, for me, it's just a, a massive, massive honour to be part of it, to be aligned to something. And whatever I can do to support the cause, you know, yeah, I'm up for it. I like the idea of these conversations. Um, maybe there's there's a lot more that I can do. Maybe we could, just, you know, we could do one together with somebody, you know, have a three-way conversation. You know, two perspectives are always better than one. Um, you know, I don't profess to having a lot of non musical knowledge. But what I do, what I do know is that I have a real passion for the music and I know good music. I know when I listen to something and it sounds good, I can pick it out. You know, that needle in the haystack, I can find it. So um, I would love to have those conversations with people and to share that and to be able to say, look, listen to this. This is amazing. You know, there's a, a track I listened to recently that was in one of my mixes. Um, it's a, uh, an Argentinian by the name of Simon uh, Varambom, and his track is called, one of his tracks I listened to called Miko. And I listened to that track and I just, I got so emotional because the, the breakdown and the buildup in that track, it just, it just pulled at my heartstrings and it made me feel really emotional. Um, and that's, that's rare, you know, and it's not often that you listen to a track that it really, you know, pulls at your heartstrings and it really, you know, in it, 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 it sort of gets those emotions going. And so I like it when I find little gems like that. And for me, the search is as much fun as playing those tracks to people that, that I think would love it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm up for, for anything, uh, Danny, to help you to, to really build out this cause and to, to, you know, to get the progressive house flag for the UK back on the map. Well, as a famous servant once said to his master, I have a cunning plan. And um, I had put a lot of thought into many of the offline conversations you and I have had and, and the emails backwards and forwards to each other about this topic. And I have had a good idea, which I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you offline, mm -hmm. um, that I think will be the right step, I think, for much of what we've talked about and a couple of ideas that I think we can we can implement so I think we're ready now I think you and I have you know had to talk about a lot of stuff and and work things out and once we kind of establish where we're at I think it's now putting some of that into action so I've got some good ideas so don't awesome. you worry awesome. I have I have got a plan I noticed you've got a beautiful t-shirt on there <laughs> an absolutely fantastic I, I'm always uh, cynical when anyone sends me a T-shirt because nine times out of ten, it's either too small or it's way too big. This one fits perfectly, and I, I actually wore it to a recent 40M event, and I was bigging up my chest, and I was like, "Yeah, this is this is who I work, you know, who I play with now." And I felt proud. I felt good, man. Like, this is, you know what? You, you don't understand, you know, the for somebody that's come into the scene so late in the game. Um, to be able to just be known to be aligned to 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 see you guys, it's it's a massive massive uh, thing for me. So thank you, man. 
will you? No, our pleasure, our pleasure. Dom, you, you, your passion and your energy shines through, and this is this is why, you know, for a lot of people who don't know, Dominic's joined our resident team, and he's going to join me behind the scenes with 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 Progressive House, and we're gonna we're gonna shake things up a little bit, and um, yeah, I'm really really pleased that you took the time tonight to chat to me and introduce yourself to people. I hope they really enjoyed the chat and got to know you better. They're certainly not the last they're going to hear from you and um you know keep those keep those new mixes coming through and there yeah, behind the scenes let's let's pull some strings and and get you get you involved because it, it really it really is an interesting scene because he you know there's many people I talk to that I I haven't met yet and yet we will have conversations and and this is why this podcast series really came about was an opportunity to speak to people a little bit more at length about what they do um, and there are lots of people working away behind the scenes kind of on their own you know the guys at Arbor Recordings, Gav you know he, Gav lives what 45 minutes from me he's beavering away signing artists like you know doing remixes with Camilo San Clemente, mm -hmm. Michael A, Hobbin Rude just amazing amazing producers of which I use all their records and it's Gav and wow. nobody knows who these people are so let's the let's raise heroes. these people together and and try and unite this scene so um yeah I mean we'll 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 call it a day there but certainly not the last time I think we'll chat I think we'll um we'll definitely discuss some of the ideas you mentioned and um see how we can uh talk to people more often but do pay attention to what I've been saying, everybody listening to this. Make sure you go on and leave us a review. If you're on Apple, leave a review, put the stars, just say a few kind words. They've got to be genuine. I'm not putting any words in your mouth, but subscribe, support, you know, share our stuff. We've got a private Facebook group. It used to be extremely buoyant. Find us on there. Just search Progressive House UK and you'll find it. Join in and we're going to try and get that going again. We've also got, obviously, the podcast and the website. It's www.progressivehouseuk.co.uk. It's dead easy. So search for us, find us. You'll hear more from me and more from Dom. So, my friend, I've, you've got the clock behind you there. It's been hard not to look at it. It's way yeah. past our bedtime. Indeed. Look at that. Yeah, way past our thank, thank you, Danny. This has been amazing, and I really appreciate your time today. It's been really good talking to you. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to, to many more conversations. Let the guys know where they can find you, Dom. Where can they hear you? So you can search for me on Instagram. So uh, uh, Dominic Ortega, DJ Dominic Ortega. You can find me. That's uh, on Facebook as well um, and on Mixcloud as well. So, yeah, Dominic Ortega is the name. So search out. There's some mixes that I'm about to, to put up a new mix this week with you guys as well. So, um, yeah, um, got some really new, exciting new music that I want to share. So looking forward to, to doing that. So, yeah. Did you get the high tech video that I made? Did I get <laughs> which high tech video? <laughs> my high my high tech instructional video. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did, I did get it. Yeah, yeah. It is. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Uh, I, 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 the funny thing about it was, in the end, I mixed a little two, two, a couple of two tunes on the bottom of it because I just thought <laughs> it couldn't be any drier than watching watching an instructional video for ten minutes about progressive house. And yeah, there was no music and me not speaking. <laughs> so afterwards, I was like, I think I'm going to have to mix some tunes underneath. There. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Oh, glad you got that. Listen, thanks again. Yeah, um, cheers, man. As always, um, everybody um, 
who's listened will get a lot of insights, I think, and, uh, and definitely feel your your passion and energy. So thanks very much, Dominic, for, uh, for taking the time. And we'll uh, we'll catch up soon, yeah? Cheers. Take All care, right. man. Take it easy. Bye, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.